You're listening to The Masters with Tiffany and Company on Monocle 24. Come with us as we meet pioneers from the fields of design, art, fashion, sport, music and more. Diverse fields, a range of talents. What unites all these trailblazers is a certain mastery. A mastery of craftsmanship, of technique, of materials, of innovation to drive what they do. We'll hear about their life and their work and hopefully understand just a little bit more about how those notions have shaped them. Maybe too we'll divine a sense of the philosophy that's brought them here and might just inspire us, in however small a way, to follow in their storied footsteps. We've already heard from Reed Krakoff, Tiffany & Company's Chief Artistic Officer, from tattoo artist Scott Campbell, and from the brilliant and visionary artist Vic Muniz. Today we're meeting photographer, creative director, and co-founder of the brilliant Apartamento magazine, Nacho Alegre. Monocle's Saul Taylor met Nacho at his studio in Barcelona. Tell me about why and how you started Apartamento. Basically, until the year 2005-06, I was a law student, but I really wanted to work in photography. I had been shooting for a while and working with several producers and with photographers in Barcelona. And then at the end of my um, university years, I was trying to put my pictures in magazines, but in Barcelona, I, I was finding it very hard. I started to go around Europe shooting for smaller magazines in Milan or in London or Paris. Since there was no money involved in those shoots, at the end I was staying in houses of friends, like houses of the editors, but also other photographers that I met on MySpace or friends from Barcelona who were studying abroad or working in, you know. Through these trips, I started to collect like an amount of pictures of like very young creatives at home. I put all this on a website and then when I had my last university exams that I never took, I got a call to do a shoot, a catalog for Vitra. That was my first commercial shoot. The art director was this guy called Cornel Vindlin. He was really big at the time. All my young friends were looking at his work. So my pictures suddenly to all my friends became really, really cool. So with Omar, my partner, he came to me and said, hey, let's do something with the pictures. You know, why don't we do a small fanzine or something? And so we started on Friday night. We started, you know, to, to do drinks and then work a little bit in design, starting to look for papers, references and... You know, slowly we, we started to build what was uh, later to be Apartamento. Then on one of these trips, I went to Milan and, and I talked to Marco, who also was into these kind of things. He was working in Switzerland in Neves, which is like an art scene publisher. So I told him a little bit about this project I had with Omar. He said, you have to show it to me, show it to me. Blah, blah. So I went back to Barcelona and then I went back to Milan. I left it there for him to see. And when I came back, he called and he was like, Nacho, we really need to do this together. I want to work on this. So I put them in touch and then we started to work and then slowly the zine became a magazine and one year later we went to Milan with like a mock-up of an issue, an issue zero of Apartamento to show it to Vitra and some companies see if anybody was uh, sponsoring it. Nobody did but we got really excited anyway and one year later we launched what uh, was Apartamento. And the cool thing is that Marco and Omar they never met until the presentation of the first issue. It was always going to be a magazine right? It was always going to be a print product. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. I'm not sure if there was any digital magazine at the time. Maybe there was Vice, but to make it digital wasn't a reality, I think. But even if it had been, the reason we were doing this is because we all love paper. It wasn't about making a business or about making a long-term project. It was about making something in paper that we could call our own and show it to our friends. So really it was about the process of doing it. 
So what is it about print? What is it about paper that, that attracts you so much? For a generation of not just graphic designers, but creatives, paper was like the maximum status in the creative world. Like once you see your work in a magazine or you see your work in a book, in a way you've made it. I don't think it has the same value even today to see something on the most important website in the world as it is to see it on a piece of paper. And then also, once you get into the world of paper, there is this thing of how you treat it, how you approach it, and it's really like it's a craft. I think once you start working with paper, it's really hard to get out of it. And is this something you still get excited about when it goes to print, when you close the magazine? How, what's the process like nowadays? There's a certain magic. The generation older than us, it was even more extreme, but we work on a computer, you have an idea of what you want and the papers and the final thing, but it's really like a magical phenomenon. Once you send it to the printer and things start coming out and they work and they put it together and it makes sense. And at the same time, it's, it's always like a surprise. I think that magic, you never lose it. Something that you've, you've always done very well from the very beginning are physical events. I wonder how important the gathering and the meeting of people are to you and to the title. I think physical events now, compared to when we started, are way more important. Years ago, you couldn't avoid making physical experience for you to meet the people that you were talking to. Now it's very easy not to do it because there are other ways of reaching everybody. The thing is, compared to all the rest, and especially if you do something that's global, it's very expensive to do things which are physical. and. So it's really a big effort. Every time we do something that happens in the real world, it, it's a really, really big effort. I wish we could do a lot more. You have a, a creative agency called Apartamento Studios, and you produce some really beautiful books. And each one seems to feel unique. I wonder why, why are books more relevant than ever? When internet came out, we thought, okay, this is going to be like the world's encyclopedia. Everything is going to be there forever, so you don't need to print anything or you don't need to save anything. But the thing is, the level of information is so, so huge that things get lost immediately. If I want to find a picture that I shot two years ago and I cannot find a hard drive, I'm never going to find it online, even though that it was shot for an online magazine. It disappears. So more than ever, because we're producing more information than ever, to put the information that is valuable on a physical thing it's super, super important. If you want things to be available in 10, no, I'm not talking about 50 years, 100 years. In 10 years, you need to print them and put them on a drawer. Even my pictures, I try to print the things that I like and just put them on an envelope and keep them there because I think it's going to be the only way to find stuff in the future. Many of the subjects that you feature in the magazine and in your books, etc., are artists and designers. What is it about them? in particular that, you know, what is it about their approach that, that you identify with? Well, for instance, it's our people in the sense that we try to think or we think, or maybe we are like them. When we started, we were very young. So we were looking at people that was like us, but older people that had made it in a way for us. So there were people maybe 10 years older than us. Then quickly we went on to people that was 50 years older than us. And that actually is the core of our interest. How do people live in, in the sense of, do they have a kitchen or a sofa or, you know, they share an apartment? Okay, then the question got bigger. It's like, how do people live? Like, this guy is 80, he's had a great life. How has he done it? What is his life approach? How do you make it to be 80 and be creative and want to make it to the, you know, to the next day because you need to make something? Four years ago, we were interviewing this photographer, David Douglas Duncan, who had been the photographer of Picasso. And at the time, he had donated all his archive to the Picasso Museum in Barcelona. So Robbie calls the guy. 
We want to do an interview. Yeah, 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 great. Okay, I'll send you the stuff on email. Perfect. He calls again, Robbie. We need to make the interview. Yeah, I sent you everything. Send me the questions. No, we need to do it in person. And the guy's like, guys, I have no time. I have no time. Then we found out the guy was 102. Every time we called his house, the wife was like, no, call him on his mobile phone. He's on the car. So we call him. He's like, I cannot speak. I'm driving. 102. And the guy was busy all the time. And he, he would tell us, guys, I have no time. You can't imagine. I'm 102. But that's the, like, how do you make it to be 100 and have this urgency to live? That's what we like to know the most from Apartamento. Tell us about your relationship with photography. It's incredibly hands-on. It's an intense art form. From, from what I can see. Yeah, the thing is, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an artist because my mom was an artist. But then my dad was a lawyer and uh, my dad was stronger than my mom, I guess. Also, I don't. my mom was never very enthusiastic on how good I was, I think, in, in drawing and these things. When I was 18, I went on to the law school. So at some point I discovered photography and I thought, okay, this is like art for people who can't draw. Great. So I started to get into photography. But I wanted to make it a little bit artistic, so I was I was always trying to make things physical. Then with digital, I went through a phase of, uh, okay, this is a job, I'm doing everything with a computer, it's not so fun anymore, I don't think it's artistic anyway. But then later, I think I, I thought, okay, you cannot really play physically with the means, but you can play with what you do. So maybe it's not so much about the support, but it's about the content, and then the content you can build things you can you know work on concepts and i think working with apartamento really helped me for this now i'm trying to learn again how to find a, a way of working that is both hands-on but not retro why do you think craftsmanship and handmade object is so relevant or prevalent nowadays i think people is looking for value beyond the digital world it's very basic but it's just like that i think people need real life interaction and things and feel that they have things which have value beyond the screen. And how would you describe Spanish design? I have an idea of what Spanish design should be like and what it is. The thing is, it has very, very few people working in that field. I think Miguel Milá is like good Spanish design because it feels Spanish in every part. It's pure, it's raw, it's not corny, it's like pure forms, it's functional. It has nothing to do with Swedish, like it has no foreign influences. But there are three or four people in the last hundred years working this way. It's Andrea Ricard and there are this uh, group of people in Madrid in the 60s. So yeah, I think in general it has more to do with those lines of Milá and even, you know, the, the work of Coder, or Torres Clave or these people. How would you describe American design? I think American design, you have to compare it to European design. American design has to do more with the projection of a status, for example. Like in architecture, in Europe you have Le Corbusier or Miss van der Rohe, and they're all about function and about social ideas of, you know, like IKEA making it available. At the same time, in America you have Neutra and you have Schindler, and it's all about projecting a certain status. And, you know, now in Sweden you have IKEA, and in America you have Apple, and Apple the great success of Apple, you know, it's a great product and it's very well done, but so is Samsung. And I think the great success of Apple is that it projects a status on whoever has it. We touched on it a little bit before, but how important is craftsmanship and technique in what you do? I think there are two different things. I think you can be... I think technique is important as long as it allows you to do what you want. But craftsmanship has not so much to do with like a previous knowledge or capabilities, but with a way of approaching what you do. And it has to do with repetition and time. And, you know, you cannot be a great craftsman at the age of 22. 
you need time and you need experience. Is there a piece of wisdom that's been passed down to you that has influenced your life or your work? And who passed that down? Mm. No, I think if I look at life at large, what I think of the most is all these uh, 90 year olds that we interview in Apartamento and what they have in common, what they have in common in the sense of waking up every morning being 95 and thinking, oh shit, you know, I have so much to do yet. But also understanding that, you know, if you do something creative and if you do something creative with a certain level of craftsmanship, it's a long term run. Probably it's going to take you some time and you're going to learn and you have to perseverate and learn and until you master what you're doing. Time is a very important factor in things. I think that's the... Basically, all these guys we interview, most of their best work are done at the age of 75 upwards. And now we're retiring people at 55. It's very strange. That brings us a little bit towards innovation, which is an overused word. Yeah. Um, what is the essence of innovation for you? I don't think innovation is a good thing per se. I think innovation has to be partial in a general line of doing. It's about improving little things and you can only improve little things also by, by repeating and by doing and by learning and by doing the same again. Innovation in everything all the time, I'm not sure if it makes sense because then you're starting from scratch in everything you do. You know, it has to be in a line of tradition, I think, innovation. Otherwise, it's not innovation. Basically, you're, uh, you're trying out things just like randomly until something works. Now we get to Tiffany. How would you describe Tiffany? And do you have any stories about it? My idea of Tiffany maybe has not so much to do with what Tiffany actually is. It's all through Elsa Peretti and her designs, which I am a big fan. Elsa Peretti has this house in Ampurda, and then since I'm like a teenager, she's like a legend. And everyone you meet that's a little bit dodgy in Ampurda tells you all these stories about this party in her house. You know, they made this, someone went, they had to kick him out, this happened, this didn't happen. So she's kind of a hero. Then I found out she was a jewelry designer and she had been doing some of the most successful designs at Tiffany. So my idea of Tiffany has to do with her lifestyle and her group of friends and her artistic relations and her grand life. It's a very specific idea what I have of Tiffany, but I'm not sure if it's the, the Tiffany. Just as an aside to everything, you've started sailing. Yeah. I wonder what it is about sailing. What is it about sailing? Is it the sea? Is it the... I love the sea, of course, and it has a lot to do with freedom and being into the sea and being alone and no one bothering you. Also, it has to do with the fact that if you go skiing, you're skiing next to one guy and there's this element of competition. When you're sailing on your own, you know that you're doing it wrong or you know that you're doing it right, but you have no one to compare yourself to. So it takes a lot of time to learn to do things really well because it's just slowly you start to realize what can you do to make this better in these conditions, but the conditions change every day. There's something I like in this, you know, very slow process of learning to do something. Also, you know, we're at an age that we cannot play football anymore or do any of these things, so we need to find a sport that we can do for the next 20 years. <laughs> I hear that. Maybe one last question, just because Tiffany is such a New York icon. What does New York represent to you? Because you have an office there, you, have, you spend time there, you go in there next week. What's so special about that place? For me, New York is like the capital of the world. I always think about New York about the capital, but then today I realize that like 60% of the world live in Asia. So even New York is on the periphery of the world. I don't know, we kind of broke the myth a little bit because I always thought that it was cool to be in Barcelona because we were on the periphery and then New York was the capital. 
but we have extended the level of periphery of Barcelona one more step because even New York is outside of the real world actually if you do something it's the place that you go to show it to present it to meet people to develop it and to it's where the real game is played I think at the same time I wouldn't like to live there Nacho Allegra there talking to Monocle's Saul Taylor and you can find out more about Tiffany & Company's men's collection by heading to tiffany.com and searching men's jewellery. In the episodes ahead of this show, we'll be meeting more inspirational innovators across fields like design, art, music and more to find out how they've mastered their craft and become industry trailblazers. Next week, we'll be speaking to the designer Ronan Borulek, who, with his brother, runs their eponymous studio in Paris. But that's all for today's edition. Thanks to our editor, Holly Fisher, and our production team in London. I'm Tom Edwards. This is The Masters with Tiffany & Company on Monocle 24. Thanks for listening.